Scripture reading this morning is from Luke 16, 1 through 13. It's on page 909 in your pew Bibles, if you wish to follow along. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking my stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that people may receive me into their homes when I, when I am put out of the stewardship. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, One hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write down eighty. The master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their world generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal habitations. He who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and he who is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you to their true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will have either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I want to share with you that this text in Luke, my favorite gospel writer, is the hardest text to preach on in the entire New Testament, bar none. I've I've asked many of my colleagues, (laughs) and most of us have chickened out this weekend and not preached on this particular text. I hope you were following along in your Bible because it's a very disturbing text coming from Jesus. Very disturbing uh, parable that we hear. And the phrase, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, which is uh, we heard here, but my translation says dishonest wealth, so that, uh, you may, so that you may be received by them into eternal homes. It's a bizarre and unusual and difficult text. And I even called up my, who, the person I consider my pastor, uh, Pastor Tim, who's the pastor at Seattle First. I said, what are you doing with this text this week? <laughs> and he said, I'm not preaching on it. <laughs> I've never preached on it. So he was no help at all in trying to figure this out. And this is a good time for me to really kind of talk about how I approach my, uh, the proclamation, the preaching uh, of the word uh, because I'm new here, you probably don't know this. But the way I the way I approach it is, I utilize the uh, Revised Common Lectionary, which is a three year cycle put together by a an ecumenical group. One of which is an American Baptist who always is on this council as well, who pulls together a three year cycle of scripture readings for each week, and. Uh, and what that means is that across the country, other churches that are utilizing the Revised Common Lectionary are all preaching and praying about and talking about the, 
the exact same scriptures. And there's a set of four. Uh, there's an Old Testament, uh, a wisdom saying like Psalms. There's a New Testament reading, a gospel reading, and then an epistle from, from the back. And I, you know, I generally go with the gospel reading, I'll, I'll, but I'll pick one of the one of the four, and I got to tell you, on this Sunday, the other three weren't all that any better. I didn't think so. So, and the reason I utilize the lectionary is because otherwise, you would pre- you would pretty well hear like four or five of my favorite sermons over and over again. I'd, I'd focus in on all those parts of the Bible that I really like, and never deal with these really difficult ones, because I'd basically be doing picking out my own scriptures and so this challenges me and it and it's important because the way I preach is I let the text dictate to me what we're going to talk about today I ask I I read I start with whatever text uh, I've been given and I pray to God and ask God to tell me what is it what is it we need to be talking about in relationship to this text so you know you'll rarely hear from me like a thematic kind of thing like the seven ways to forgive or this you know the 18 rules for uh good you know uh having a wonderful life with no problems any of those I, i'm not really good at those you know where you kind of have a a whole bunch of little scriptures kind of thrown here and there to back up what it is you're saying proof texting through the bible i rarely do that i always let the top text kind of be in the center and i I try to react to that text by the, in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, keeping in mind this whole community and uh, holding you all in my heart as we do that. So that's, I just wanted to, so I'm faced with this very difficult text and I, uh, I should have chickened out probably, but uh, I decided, you know, this is what, this is the way I, this is why I do this is so that I can't just walk away from the difficult ones. And so I wrestled with this one over the week and, uh, uh, and looked at it, and I thought about all the ways I could approach this text, looking at scholarship, and i got to tell you, there's been, been hundreds of years of scholarship looking at this text, and there is absolutely no consensus about it, about what does it mean, who is the, who is the shrewd steward, who is the shrewd manager that, that uh, does these things. Um, I could talk about the economics of the time. It's an obvious economic parable. Uh, and the re- I could talk about how the reality is that there is no such thing in the first century Palestine, there is no such thing as an honest rich person. There, there's no mechanism. It's not like it's not like America, you know, where if you pull, you know, if you work hard and you come up with a great idea, you can, you know, you can make it and you can, there is, you can get honest wealth in the world we live in today. There was no means of obtaining honest wealth in first century Palestine. If you were rich, you were dishonest. There's no other way. It's always done on the backs of the poor. It was always done. Usually you're born into wealth. It's a, it's a very heavy caste system. And there's just no way to have any kind of social mobility. So wealth is always a dishonest bargain in first century Palestine. Understanding that, we could talk about the economics that are going on here. I could have talked about the eschatological view, that is to see that the disciples here 
hear this text, hear this parable in the context of the coming kingdom, which the disciples, uh, after Christ's resurrection, they were expecting Jesus to come back any day. They, they, were wait, they thought, you know, a few weeks, <laughs> and then we're going home. Then Jesus would come again and set everything right, and we'd be in the kingdom of God as we always anticipated it. It was kind of, and so I could have said, you know, I could have approached it as kind of the, another way of saying, do not store up treasure where rust will destroy, but store up treasure in heaven. It's kind of, I mean, we could have talked about that a little bit, and I could have pulled that out of here somewhere. That's what some of the commentators do. I could see this in the context of honor and shame in first century Palestine and how important that is in the Jewish culture and suggest that the steward had in the first instance brought shame to the master and now through his shrewd dealings restored the honor of the master by making him look generous. Uh, but quite frankly, I found that a little boring. So I didn't, I didn't do that. And I could talk about all these great insights and more, but quite frankly, it's still, all of them still left me with the question, what the heck is Jesus talking about here? What is this bizarre parable that seems to be counter to everything we've heard Jesus say? It makes little sense to me. Jesus seems to be saying in this parable, hey, the smart thing to do is to use other people's money to gain favor and buy friends so that when things get rough, you'll be taken care of. That's the message we're getting from the Lord and Savior? That seems a little self-centered, Jesus. <laughs> And as I wrestled with this text, the only real satisfying approach was to see this story in the context of the other three stories that Jesus told as a rebuff to the Pharisees' objections about who Jesus chose to spend time with. Now, if you were here last week, you heard a story. We focused on the story of the prodigal son. Again, in response to the Pharisees' objections, Jesus tells this story of the prodigal son who, after taking his father's money, squandered it on wine, women, and song. And then finding himself lost and alone, he returned to the waiting arms of his father. And I'm not going to do the dance again, but you remember that the father was so excited to see Jesus coming and who reinstates him as his son in spite of the fact that he doesn't deserve it. In fact, it's ridiculous that this father would accept this shameful son who has dishonored his whole family back into sonship. But this isn't really about selfish children or sappy dads. It's a story. I believe this is what this parable is about. This is a story about grace. This is a story about the power of grace to change, to restore, to heal, and to make whole. That's what the story of the prodigal son is about. And I believe that's what this story is about as well. The steward here is accused, uh, and, I, and I, I, I keyed in for me what stood out 
was this first phrase where the steward is accused of squandering the master's money. So he summoned him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Oh, no, wait a minute. Back up here. He says, there is a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. The prodigal son also was squandering the property of the father. Same word is used in both, in both stories. But unlike the son, this squandering yielded many good relationships on which he could rely through the tough times. The prodigal son had no such relationships. He was alone and without hope when all of his money ran out. Jesus, again, we need to go back and re realize that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of squandering God's grace among people that were seen as not deserving God's attention, let alone God's mercy and God's grace. Jesus, who squanders the love of God on prostitutes, on tax collectors, on the marginalized and the poor and the left out, who touches lepers with the grace of God, who forgives sins. Jesus, who ridiculously lavishes grace on you and me every time we step away from our senses and squanders it on you and me. The grace of God squandered on the undeserving, on the lowly, like me <laughs> and you. So here, Jesus relays this story that suggests that squandering God's grace is exactly what He was sent to do. And that because of that grace given, relationships are built. Reconciliation happens. People learn to trust and to cherish Christ. Not because he was wise. I mean, Jesus was wise. Although I question that after reading this. But Jesus is wise, right? But not because he's wise. Not because he was correct in his thinking. In fact, if you ask the religious authorities of the day, Jesus was way out in left field. And not because he had the approval of people in power. People followed Christ because he was generous with grace. He was generous with God's mercy and God's grace. Jesus was generous in a way that gave people hope, that made them want to be better people, that made them want to love others in the same way, and it made the people who liked things the way they were very angry. It made the people who would rather Keep certain people out very angry. Angry to the point that they killed him, executed him for blasphemy because he touched lepers and forgave sins. But grace is something that once it gets rolling, really can't be stopped. How often... How many times, how many ways did Jesus say to people, God loves you, 
God is here and knows you. God forgives you for all those things you see as sins and unforgivable. And God wants to have a deep and meaningful relationship with you. And Jesus says that to those in the world who never in their wildest dreams would ever have expected to hear those words from anybody. Jesus tells this story to the disciples about the shrewd manager, about the shrewd steward, and says, God has resourced you for this world. You all know how this world works. How will you use those resources to love people into the kingdom of God? Again, he's still dealing with the Pharisees' objections But he's talking to the disciples and saying, people are going to hate you for this, but you are called to love people into the kingdom. You are called to squander God's grace on those who have experienced it the least. And we here are posed with the same question. How can we use what we have, what we have been given, what we've been born with, what we have obtained through hard work or dishonest means, how will we use it all to love people into the kingdom of God? How will we make that reality? And i got to say that grace is something one decides to extend. It goes against our natural instincts. Our natural inclination is to revel in other people's failures. Our inclination is to look for ways in which people are not quite up to standard and making note of it and letting people know. Our inclination is to so often feel like more when we we can make others feel like less. But grace given repairs damage. It stops the flow of unhealthy behavior and unhealthy relationships. It offers opportunities for newness. Grace values the person, not just the rightness of their actions, but who they are in the core. Grace can look past the inadequacies of the people we come in contact with and focuses on the potential for goodness. Grace looks past the person that is in front of you and looks to the person that God has created each of us to be. I am convinced that we disciples are called to a ministry of grace. We live in a time and a place where grace is needed. Grace brings healing we are called to squander grace in ways that inspire people to live differently. Is that not what God's grace has done for us? Have we not changed? Have we not been inspired to live differently? Not by the wisdom of it, but by the power of the grace. 
So I ask this, how will you squander God's grace in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? What will you do to think deliberately about it? Will you start each day asking God to open your eyes to the opportunities for grace? Will you write a little note and stick it on your mirror? Will you tattoo the word grace in some prominent place? Whatever, you know, I'm, I'm open. Whatever method you have to remember that you are an ambassador of grace and to deliberately wake up each day and acknowledge that. God, you have called me to be an ambassador of grace today. Give me the power to do it because sometimes it's hard. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not really excited about that. That's why I don't put a little fish on the back of my car, right? <laughs> but we have been called to the ministry of grace. And furthermore, it is our faith. i got to say this. It is our faithfulness to this ministry of grace that will grow this church, that will grow the ministry of this church. Our ministry of grace will draw us into authentic Christian community with a lifestyle of grace filled living as a way of life. And that is something that this community is longing for. Authentic, Christian, faithful, grace filled living in community. Authentic, lavish, squandered grace. Let us pray. God of grace, God of extraordinary love, we hear this very difficult text, and today we hear a calling to grace. Help us to know what that looks like in our lives. Help us to work on those areas where we forget that we are ambassadors of grace. And help us as a people, as a church, as the body of Christ, to articulate for ourselves what that ministry of grace looks like in this community. We ask all of this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, that shrewd manager who lavishes so much grace on us and everyone he came in contact with. Amen.